The story of the Magi from the East is an echo of the ancient pagan world. We take Christian history for granted and forget the power of the ancient world and the influence of the East on the Western ancient world. A good example is that the ancient Babylonians named the weekdays after the five planetary bodies known to them, and then the other two days they dedicated to the sun and the moon. We know them still as Sunday and Monday or Moon Day. The Jews, of course, explained the seven days of the week quite differently. But the Romans followed the Babylonian example because it was an august and important ancient empire that predated the Roman Empire. They were much more influenced by the East, but not so much by Judaism. And the Emperor Constantine established the seven-day week in the Roman calendar in 321 AD, designating Sunday and Monday as the first two days of the week, following the Babylonian example. The names of our days of the week came later in European history. The English weekday names were derived from Anglo-Saxon names for gods, uh, that rose or found in Teutonic mythology. Tuesday comes from Tu, the ancient Saxon name for Tyr, the Norse god of war, a child of Odin, or also known as Woden, and that's where we get Wednesday. Uh, Thor, another son of Woden, the god of thunder, that's where we get Thursday or Thor's day. Friday is derived from Frigga, the wife of Odin, representing love and beauty. So, Pretty much Tuesday through Friday is all about Odin's family. Then Saturday, that's a Roman invention, comes from Saturn, who was their god of festivals and feasting and, and I think the harvest. We kept Sunday in honor of the sun and moon day, Monday in honor of the moon. But you see, whether it's the ancient Norse, the Romans, the Babylonians, all have had a place uh, day to day in our lives because the echoes of the pagan world are still all around us. The Judaism's world wasn't taken seriously by the Romans. The Romans, however, knew of Jewish prophecies because they were a pain in the neck. The Romans knew about the prophecy of a Judean king that would claim universal authority. And they also knew about the star. But they believed, as did Herod, that the prophecy applied to their emperor, not to any Jewish king. They thought that the Jews were ignorant and were simply overly ambitious, thinking they would in fact rule the world. But the Roman historian Tacitus, who lived from 56 AD to 120 AD, wrote about the Jewish war, which if you remember, was the big Jewish revolt where the temple was destroyed in the mid-60s. So he wrote about something that happened when he was a little kid. And he also wrote about the Jewish messiahs. Here's what he uh, put into his uh, book on the uh, 12 Caesars, the history of the 12 Caesars of Rome. This is a quote. Some few put a fearful meaning on these events, that is the Jewish revolt. But in most, there was a firm persuasion that in the ancient records of their priests was contained a prediction of how at this very time, the East was to grow powerful and rulers coming from Judea were to acquire a universal empire. These mysterious prophecies had pointed to Vespasian and Titus, but the common people, the Jews, with the usual blindness of ambition, had interpreted these mighty destinies about themselves and could not be brought in even by the disasters that overcame them to believe the truth. 
because all of those revolts by the zealots were about messiahs. Jesus wasn't the only one whose followers claimed that he was a messiah. Another early historian named Suetonius, who lived about the same time as Tacitus, uh, wrote uh, another book about the histories, and he penned the following words about the first Jewish war and the Messiah. A firm persuasion had long prevailed through all the East that it was fated for the empire of the world at that time to devolve on some who should go forth from Judea. This prediction referred, however, to a Roman emperor, as events showed. But the Jews, applying it to themselves, broke out into rebellion, and having defeated and slain their governor, routed the lieutenant of Syria, a man of consular rank, who was advancing to his assistance, and took an eagle, the standard of one of his legions. Of course, Vespasian and Titus were then dispatched by the Roman emperor who brought, who basically destroyed Judaism, uh, tore down Jerusalem and the temple, and renamed Jerusalem Capitolina, and uh, pretty much put an end to uh, the Jewish world as Jesus knew it. You know, interestingly, Suetonius also makes reference to the emperor Claudius uh, about the banning of Christians from Rome. And this happened about the same time, a little earlier than the Jewish war. Here's what Suetonius wrote that the emperor Claudius did. He banned from Rome all the Jews who were continually making disturbances at the instigation of one Christus, Suetonius thought Christus was a slave. But we Christians know who he was because he was also referred to in the Acts of the Apostles in chapter 18, verse 2, where it says that St. Paul, uh, when he went to Corinth, met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Christians were still seen as Jews in the first century, what was happening in Judea was poorly understood, especially when it came to the king of the Jews. The Romans knew all about these same uh, prophecies that we've been talking about through Advent. They just didn't understand what it meant. Well, they weren't alone, because Herod didn't get it either. Hello and welcome to Oral Valley Catholic on the Feast of the Epiphany. You know, the Romans may have known about the prophecies and Herod may have known about the prophecies and didn't understand them, but there was someone who did. St. Paul talked about it. He understood what was happening and he talked about it especially in his letter to the Ephesians. He said that a mystery had been revealed to him. The mystery was why the nations were converting to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and away from the pagan idols. They would worship the creator, not the created. And he wrote in Ephesians that the mystery was made known to me by revelation. It was not made known to people in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit that the Gentiles or co-heirs, members of the same body, and co-partners in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So why is this surprising? We kind of take this for granted. It's surprising to St. Paul and his generation because the whole history of Israel is one of conflict with the pagan world. You know, you thought of the Roman attitude, uh, very uh, uh, condescending 
towards the Jewish people and their worth and their own prophecies. They could uh, decide what the prophecies meant. The Jewish people didn't get it, saying what their own prophecies meant. But it's that attitude that St. Paul saw falling by the way as uh, Gentiles converted uh, to follow Christ and were baptized. The, all the nations that had worshiped idols that represented natural powers, that oppressed Israel for centuries, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, the Greeks, and the Romans, they were all going to convert to Christ. They were all going to follow the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that's really what the feast is about today because it's about the fulfillment of ancient prophecy. The prophet Isaiah foretold that the ethne, that is the people of the world, it's where the word ethnic comes from. The ethne would come to see the light. So there is this complete book of the prophet Isaiah. It's a scroll, it's in a museum in Israel. It's 24 feet long. It was discovered at Qumran and dates to just before the time of Christ. It's the same as the book of Isaiah that we have now. We're working from the same book. And in that book, in Isaiah, in chapter 66, which is the last chapter in Isaiah, uh, Isaiah's prophecy is this. I'm coming to gather all nations and tongues. They shall come and see my glory and will place a sign among them. From them, I will send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish, Put-and-Lud, Mosach, Tubal, and Javan, to the distant coastlands which have never heard of my fame or seen my glory, and they shall proclaim my glory among the nations. They shall bring all your kin from all the nations. That's the 10 tribes that were uh, lost to the Assyrians. As an offering to the Lord, they'll come on horses and in chariots and carts upon mules and dromedaries. That's a camel. To Jerusalem, my holy mountain, says the Lord. Just as the Israelites bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. And some of these I will take as priests and Levites, says the Lord. Well, that last part's interesting, isn't it? It's not just that they're going to come and bring their gifts to Jerusalem. The Lord is going to make them priests and Levites. They'll lead the cult of Israel. The idea that idol worships, idol worshipers, would take part in the deepest and most intimate worship of Israel is a shocking uh, idea to a traditional Jew who, if you follow the law, couldn't even uh, touch a Gentile or have dinner in their home. Paul, however, was, was witnessing the conversion of the Gentiles in Rome and Corinth and Athens, in Thessalonica, the, uh, the, uh, in Philippia, and all of these places where he preached. They, all the Gentiles and the Jews were being called into one church or ecclesia or synagogue. It all means the same thing, the gathering of God's people. Jews and goyim, goyim is how a, a Jew would refer to the Gentiles, worship together the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And see, the wise men from the East that are featured in St. Matthew's Gospel are simply the first fruits and represent the wise from amongst the pagans to the east, the ancient world. Because even in those days, there was this split between the Western and Eastern world that ran along the Levant where Israel is. It's right like a speed bump between East and West. St. Paul had seen this sign from God as Gentiles came to believe. Jesus came into the world. He proclaimed the kingdom of God was at hand. He sent out 12 apostles 
amongst the foreign nations, and they converted over time in mass. And when I mean by mass, the whole crowd came. Pagans turned from idols and pagan temples closed down. The prophecies were being fulfilled by the miraculous conversion of the ethne, all the foreign nations. Who could accomplish that but God? And that's what the story in St. Matthew's Gospel is about today. So what is all this about the Magi from the East in Matthew's Gospel? Well, you know, there's several kings involved here, right? One is Herod. We know about Herod. He's a puppet king, a puppet of the Romans. But he thinks that the messianic uh, prophecies all apply to him. And so when the Magi come to see him, he wants to know where he can find the Christ child so he can get rid of a competitor. Remember what I said, the Emperor Augustus said that, Emperor, that it was safer to be Herod's dogs and his sons because he killed a couple of them who he thought were getting too ambitious. But when the Magi came to visit uh, Herod, remember they inquired about where the Messiah was to be born. And this is where all of the, this conversation amongst the pagans comes from about this prophecy. There's, it's in multiple places in the Old Testament, but clearly Micah is one that's a central prophetic text about the coming of the Messiah. And where was the Messiah to be born? Here's what it says. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, least among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origin is from of old, from ancient times. And therefore the Lord will give them up until the time when she who is to give birth is born. And then the rest of his kindred shall return to the children of Israel. He shall take his place as shepherd by the strength of the Lord, by the majestic name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell securely, for now his greatness shall reach to the ends of the earth. That's Micah chapter 5 verse 2. So the star... Where does that come from? What was that? You know, interestingly enough, I'll get to the star, which is in the book of Numbers, which is one of the ancient books from the Torah. But did you know that in the middle of the second century, there was another Jewish revolt led about like from 132 to 135. Uh, is after the time of Tacitus and Suetonius, the two Roman historians I talked about. But it's called the Bar Kokhba Rebellion. Why is that interesting? It's interesting because the name Bar Kokhba, Bar always means son of, Kokhba means the star. So Bar Kokhba literally means son of the star. Of course, he was killed and all of his followers were killed. But meanwhile, the Christians are being persecuted and are growing in number, but are under the radar. So where does this whole thing about the star come from? It's the book of Numbers, chapter 24, verses 17 to 19. And this is... The, probably the oldest messianic prophecy, and it's rooted back in the Mosaic scriptures. Here's what it says. I see him, though not now. I observe him, though not near. A star shall advance from Jacob, and a scepter shall rise from Israel that will crush the brows of Moab and the skull of all the Sethites. Edom will be dispossessed, and no survivor is left in Seir. Israel will act boldly, and Jacob will rule 
will rule his foes. It actually comes from a blessing. And it's about uh, Jacob, remember, is the father of the 12 sons that are Israel. And so the star is this ancient prophecy that would uh, be the sign of the Messiah. But what about the wise men or the Magi? The Magi were from the East. And in the first century, and it's true today, the Levant, Palestine, where Israel is, is like the separating line from Eastern and Western culture, and it, and it was even in the time of, of ancient Israel. The Greeks and the Romans, who we think of as the roots of Western culture, and then you're looking at the Middle East, the Tigris, Euphrates, India, and China, and you can see how there's this dividing line there uh, religiously, um, but also just you know how these cultures have developed over time. But the word magi or magoi is the root of our word for magician. But it could also refer to an astrologer or an astronomer. It could refer to just a, a learned class of people in general. But they were the, the people that were kind of the intelligentsia. That's what it refers to. And so Isaiah 60, so Isaiah chapter 60, the great prophet uh, of the Messiah, uh, writes, Rise up, rise up in splendor, Jerusalem. Your light has come. The glory of the Lord shines upon you. Nations shall walk by your light and kings by your shining, shining radiance. Caravans of camels shall fill you. Dromedaries from Midian and Ephah, all from Sheba shall come bearing gold, frankincense, and proclaiming the praises of the Lord. Psalm 72 picks up on that. The kings of Tarshish and the isles shall offer gifts. The kings of Arabia and Seba shall bring tribute. All shall pay him homage um, and all nations shall serve him. And then it continues about the nature of this king, this Messiah, because Psalm 72 is a messianic psalm. The, the, the justice shall flourish in his days and profound peace till the moon be no more. May he rule from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. For he shall rescue the poor when he cries out and the afflicted when he has no one to help him. Do you remember how I talked about the Magi, the learned? Well, early Christianity obviously attracted some deeply intelligent people. The people who wrote Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are not slow boats. But there's also people like Justin Martyr, St. Irenaeus, St. Ignatius of Antioch, uh, Tertullian, the great Tertullian and the great Origen. All of these people in the early part of Christianity are deeply thoughtful and intelligent and well-educated people. Here's what St. Irenaeus wrote in his book Against the Heresies. Contra Heresios is, is the name of the book in Latin, though I think he wrote in Greek. Um, but he wrote in the middle of the second century about the meaning of the gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They showed by these gifts which they offered who it was that was worshiped, Myrrh, because it was he who should die and be, buried and be buried for the mortal human race. Gold, because he was a king, of whose kingdom there is no end. And frankincense, because he was God, who also was made known in Judea and was declared to those who sought him not. Frankincense is what's offered in incense offerings in the, in the temple. You know how the pagan world reacted to these stories and Christianity. That's what the epiphany is all about. Epiphany, to have an epiphany is an awakening. The light comes on, you finally see. It's like Israel's cracked open and the treasure that's been there for 10 plus centuries suddenly is just unleashed on the world. 
And, you know, we're the result of it. But there was a, a, a man in Rome in the middle third century, St. Eusebius of Caesarea, who was, uh, he was from Caesarea, I guess, in the Middle East, was a fourth century Christian, but I think he wrote in Rome too, um, an apologist. He argued for the faith because it's the time when Christianity and paganism is in this struggle in the mid 14th century about who is going to uh, kind of uh, be culturally dominant in the Roman Empire. Obviously, the Christians are going to win this fight. But here is uh, what St. Eusebius wrote in his book from the fourth century called The Proof of the Gospels. And it's about the conversion of the pagans as a sign of God in the world. This is what he wrote. Behold how to today, yes, in our own times, our eyes see not only Egyptians, but every race of men who used to be idolaters, whom the prophet meant when he said, Egyptians released from the errors of polytheism and the demons and calling on the God of the prophets. They pray no longer to lords many, but to one Lord, according to the sacred oracle. They have raised to him an altar of unbloody and reasonable sacrifice, according to the new mysteries of the fresh and new covenant throughout the whole of the inhabited world, and in Egypt itself and among other nations, Egyptians and their superstitious heirs. Yes, in our own time, the knowledge of the omnipotent God shines forth and sets the seal of certainty on the forecast of the prophets. You see this actually going on. You no longer only expect to hear of it. And if you ask the moment when the change began, for all your inquiry, you will receive no other answer but the moment of the appearance of the Savior. And so we celebrate the Feast of the Epiphany because it was the dying of the ancient pagan world. But you know, people still worship uh, power and sex and money, these natural things. It's part of the human DNA to be drawn to give ultimate value to created things, not understanding how the created points to the creator. When we celebrate the Feast of the Epiphany, it's that the gospel was unleashed on the world, but it's still struggling with the darkness, isn't it? It still brings light into a world that would glorify violence and simply giving in to your, to your worst impulses, basically. And so as we think about um, who, what we Christians bring into the world, we remember our forebears in the Christian faith, the pagan world that they survived, but how in some way, as I said, the echoes of the pagan world are still amongst us. And it's not just in Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, and Saturday, named after all these gods. It's still about what those gods represented, where created things were given the sense of ultimate power. This has been another production of Oral Valley Catholic, and I invite you to share this with your friends, email it to them. It's a way to get the truth of the gospel out beyond the, uh, the pews. I hope you enjoyed my reflections on the epiphany. And if I haven't wished you already, have a happy new year.